Well, if you're new, we're in this series called Stranger Beliefs, and the big idea is to really address some of the beliefs that, that those inside the church and outside the church find a little strange and, and difficult to process. And we started out the series talking about creation, so we looked at the Genesis 1 account, but in doing so, we passed something up that was very fascinating that I just made a footnote of that I want to go back to. So let's read Genesis 1 again. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, Genesis was not written in English as shocking as it is. It was originally written in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word for God looks like this. Now, if you can't read that, there was an English translation, and the word for God is, is this word Elohim. Now, the word Elohim is interesting because it's obviously referring to something that is one, yet is grammatically plural. So one of the things that we see here, even in the wording of God, is you have something that is one, but strangely multiple. And as you read into verse 2, it says this, God created, and this word created is this forceful word, bra, that means to create something out of nothing. And so in this God that is somehow one but multiple, we see that he is in verse, uh, 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 excuse me, uh, one, a creator. In verse 2, it says he's, the spirit of God was hovering. So in verse 1, he is a creator. In verse 2, he is a spirit. And then in verse 3 on, uh, God begins to speak and things come into existence. God says, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be Plants and there was plants. God said, let there be animals and there was all kinds of animals. So God spoke. So there is this, there is God who is this creator, God who is spirit, and God who is word. And we know from John chapter 1 uh, that this word is Jesus. Let me show you that. It says, in the beginning, which sounds very familiar to Genesis 1, in the beginning was the word, referring to Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So saying that uh, he, was, he was simultaneously saying that the word um, was with him, so there's relationship. They're, they're not the same, but yet they are the same because the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing that, uh, uh, and without him was not anything made that was made. So it was all made through him and by him, and so they're saying there's, there's multiple, there's a, there's a one God, but multiple. And so in the self-revelation of who God is, from the beginning of creation, and as you move on in the Bible and, and John and other places, and uh, like we'll, we, we will read today, from the very beginning of time, we see that God is a trinity, that God is uh, one God existing as three persons, one what, three who's. He's, and even in our text this morning, Paul is saying that uh, he's kind of, he's saying just like God created the world, the triune God created the world, the triune God was involved in creation, the triune God is involved in the recreation of the world. Just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were involved in creating, there was nothing that was made that wasn't made through them. Just as he was involved in creating the world, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit want to recreate you. Now maybe you're thinking, okay, three persons but one God, why is that important? Why do I need to believe that there's one God in three persons, you know, versus a unigod, just one singular God or multiple gods or no God at all. I mean, this, this, this one God, three persons, it seems strange. Well, it is strange. Um, that's why we're talking about it. That's why we're talking, stranger beliefs. That's why we're talking about it. It's a strange, 
it's like, how do we make sense of this? And so there may be this temptation to kind of like, I don't, you know, whatever. But I want to invite you a little bit closer to look at this because even though it's cognitively difficult to get a hold of, it is just bursting with meaning and implication for our lives. It is difficult to get a hold of. But what we see that God is, is one, yet three. He's not more fundamentally one than he is three, but he's not more fundamentally three than he is one. He is one God in three uppers. Not, not uh, one God, you know, not one God with multiple different personalities that takes on these different forms. Not that. Some people believe that. That's not what, that's not what it is. Uh, nor is it just, you know, three distinct gods who are just really tight. You know, they just really like to hang out and they're really close and they kind of know what each other's are thinking. That's not it at all. It's one God with three um, persons. And this is really huge for us because it's going to let us know what ultimate reality is. Whatever your view of God is, is your view of ultimate reality. But it's not just that, but it's going to tell, tell you a little bit about what you think um, life is all about. And if you can understand this God as one and three persons, you'll begin to understand why you were created and how to get the most out of life. C.S. Lewis said this. He's a really smart guy. He says, God is not an impersonal thing or a static thing. He is not even just one person, but he is a dynamic, pulsating activity, almost, if you not think me irreverent, a type of dance. Saying that they're all like loving each other and preferring each other, and no, after you, no, after you, and no, after you. And they're all orbiting, loving, doting, serving, glorifying. You know, you read through John 17. Uh, it's a great place to go, especially in the latter half of just talking about how, the, how the, the love that they have for each other and the honoring of one another, that the persons within the Godhead exalt, commune, defer, put each other at the center of their being. God's interior life, therefore, is overflows with self-giving love for others. Self-giving. And then C.S. Lewis went on to say this. He said, why does this all matter? Because maybe you're there. Why does this all matter? It matters more than anything in the world. This whole drama or dance is meant to play out in each one of our lives. And he says this. They, referring to the Godhead, they are a great fountain of energy spurting up at the very center of reality, ultimate reality. And there's no other way to experience the happiness for which we were made. What he's saying is like in... You know, God is ultimate reality, and his essence is, is, is going to tell us something about the way that we get uh, the most out of life, what life is really all about, its purpose, happiness, and meaning. God put us in the garden originally. He put us originally in the garden to experience this love feast, this dance between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, this love where they were preferring and honoring and orbiting around each other, blessing each other. But our enemy in the garden told us and still tells us that life isn't revolving around God and others, but real life is found when you get other people to revolve around you. So the serpent said to Eve, you can be your own center. You can have other people revolve around you. God's trying to get you to obey him. But I'm telling you, like, you can have things revolve around you, but it wasn't true. We believed it, but it wasn't true. And it's called all kinds of pain and separation. Uh, it's divided us. It's divided us politically, so there's nations are against each other. It's divided us racially. Races don't get along. And it's divided us personally. It's... It's hard to be friends. 
for a long period of time. It's hard to stay married. It's caused great, great divinity. The self-centered life is a life that wants to stay static and get other people to serve them. So maybe you give to the poor, but you give to the poor because it makes you feel good about yourself or as, and as long as it doesn't cut too much into your lifestyle. Or maybe you might have friends or, or you might help people. You may even fall in love. Who knows? But you do so as long as it doesn't compromise your individual interest and in what makes you happy. Self-centeredness, therefore, makes everything a means to your end. It makes everything a means to your end. Your end is the non-negotiable. It's what I want. It's what I like. It's my interest. Everything revolves around me. So if you ever went, like, why is no one, I mean, Americans, if you, do, if you pay attention to polls and stuff like that compared to, we, we have a, we're not happy. We are a hyper-individualistic culture, and we are not happy. We don't think our life matters. Nobody has a purpose. And here's why. It's because nobody is willing to be a means, but everybody wants to be an end. We're not willing to be a means to end. We want to be the end. We want other people to be the means, and we want to be the end. We want to be the center. But here's the thing. Anything that has purpose, by definition, must be a means to the end. To have purpose is to be a means to an end. So a hammer nails nails. A vehicle provides transportation. It has a purpose because it is a means to an end that's not itself. If you, you say hammer, nail some nails, he's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want to do. That hammer is worthless. It is purposelessness. It has no purpose. It has no purpose. You have to be willing to be a means to an end. And that's why C.S. Lewis refers to this ultimate reality as a dance, where this community, loving, preferring, enjoying one another, instead of self-centeredness, the Father and the Son are not centered on themselves, but they're centered on one another. None of them assisting that, hey, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me. Rather, they're centering on each other, adoring one another, loving one another, glorifying one another, voluntarily orbiting around each other. I mean, if you'd imagine five, ten, hundred people all trying to be the center. I mean, you think about our solar system. You know, there's, the, the planets have this orbiting, but if, if one of the, no, I want to be the center. I want to star. I want to be the center. It would not be a dance. It would be chaos, and it would be a push for power. You know, it's interesting that in this time period where Genesis was, was written, that's, that's what people thought. Because when you, whatever ultimate reality has existed before we got here, and so people thought ultimate reality was power. Um, and so uh, when Genesis was written around 1400 uh, B.C., the common belief is that the origin of the world was a result of this power struggle. It was like this, co- it was this like weird life, lo- uh, love triangle among the gods. and It's like this cosmic WWF meets a soap opera. It was strange and weird. And so the basic premise, though, is that the world arose out of conflict because it was the, what, what has always existed was power about it's about gaining power to yourself but genesis paints a completely different picture it says we weren't created out of divine conflict we were created out of divine love where there was joy and not sorrow where there was love and not strife where there's community and not individualism and those go together that joy and love and community go together and individualism strife and sorrow are their own little package And so we are created out of this essence and the implications, as C.S. Lewis has said, and I'm trying to say, and the Bible certainly is saying, 
are tremendous because God is both eternal and he is, the, he is ultimate reality. Whatever you say God is, is ultimate reality. It's what our, long heart, it's what our heart longs for. And if you think about it, if you think about a unipersonal God, a God who's just one. If God's not three persons in one, but simply one person, that means until the world began, like we said, there was no love. Because if you're just, in order to love, there has to be someone else. And so if God is just by himself, it's just one God, not three persons, just one God, one person. Um, love didn't exist until we showed up. Which, two things. A, it makes God kind of pathetic. He needs us. It, makes, it means that he's not self-sufficient, number one. But number two, it means that love is not the essence of God. It means the essence of God is power. And the essence of a unipersonal God is power. And, and a unipersonal God belief tends to create moralism and universalism. Ultimate reality is power. On the other hand, the secular view of God produces fatalism or relativism. Which, which puts the individual at the center. So the world centers around me. So a unipersonal God and a belief that there is no God um, ultimately puts the individual at the center. Now, if you're thinking like, man, I'm not after power. That's not me. You know, that's, that's somebody else's struggle. Well, let me, let me ask you this. If, if, I was to, if you were to be asked, you know, what's your ultimate day look like? I guarantee you it looked something like, well, some... Uh, somebody did my chores, somebody washed my car, somebody mowed my yard, somebody cooked dinner for me, somebody uh, cleaned the house for me, somebody did, uh, you know, work wasn't difficult, people just kind of came around and asked me what I wanted, it was kind of this, you know, I'm on, camp, you know, I'm on some beach somewhere and there's somebody wanting to give me my ties and like everything would be people serving you. Your ultimate day would not be, man, I, I would just find people that I could serve and love and give my life away. And, and, and we don't catch this because it's the, this is a culture we live in. We live in an individualistic culture that says, me before you. When I get mine, maybe just maybe, I'll help you. It's a struggle for power. Individualism leads to a struggle for power, getting other people to serve you. But the triune God, the God of the Bible, is both an individual and a community. And ultimate reality is love and relationship. It's community and people knowing and loving one another. And you should be very interested in that because check out what it says in Genesis 1.26. Let us, this is God speaking, let us make man, that's mankind, man and woman, in our image, in our likeness. This, this print, this, this way that we are, the essence of who we are is what we're going to put in the heart and the soul of every man, woman, and child. And what he made you for, what the essence, the overflow which we were created was love and relationship. And it's desire for others to orbit around us, for us to be the center that has caused all the pain and the strife and the sorrow. And God's wanting us to get us back to his dance, to his love, to his preferring one another. Our lives will never be complete until we realize that ultimate reality is not getting other people to orbit around us, but it's actually us going out to others and loving and serving them. The pathway to godliness, wholeness, and joy always leads toward relationship. 
It always leads toward community. Now, this is hard for us in our society, a very individualistic society. For most of us, and I'd say especially men, relationships, we'll say things like this. Relationships are nice as long as they don't get away with my personal agenda. Relationships are nice as long as they don't get in front of my freedoms, my rights, my interests. Relationships are nice, but what's really important is money, is power, it's achievement, and it's accomplishment. Think about it. Think, whether you have a corporate job or, or, or you have a creative job or whatever your job is, if you're doing well, you don't have time for a relationship. You don't have time for a relationship. We're all affected by it. We all live here. We're all affected by this. This is the air that we breathe. And if we get sucked into it, if we put personal accomplishment above loving and serving others, you're going to dash your life on the rocks of reality because ultimate reality is not a struggle for power. It's this beautiful, loving relationship, honoring, preferring, serving one another. I wish I had more nights and weekends to work, says no one on their deathbed. <laughs> Nobody says, you know what, if I, if I would just got a few more rounds of golf in, that would have like, then I'd feel better about my life. No one says, you know, if I would have painted more paintings, if I would have accomplished more accomplishment, everybody says, we all say, man, at, at our deathbed, man, if, if I had to do it all over again, I would have spent more time with the people I love. Why do we say that? Why do we say that? Here's why we say that. Because we finally, in a moment of clarity and perspective on our deathbed, realize that life is about love and relationships because the essence of ultimate reality is love and relationships and the preferring and the deferring and centering ourselves around other people. And we just spend our whole lives centering around ourselves. It's weird because we start out as kids like craving relationships. And we instinctively know this. I mean, when, I, when, I t- when my kids were younger, we'd take them to the park. And they would see some other kid. You know, they'd see some other kid. They'd walk up to their kid and they would look at each other like, hey, I think I was created to relate to you. And they'd just start playing and they're like, I have a new best friend now. And it's just like, how did that happen? How did that happen? And then the older we get, the more isolated we get. The more isolated we get, the more I- and, then, and then it just peaks until we get to our deathbed when it's literally too late. Let's check out what Proverbs 18 says. This is a book of wisdom. It says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. You tracking with that? Isolation and individualism go together. He breaks out against all sound judgment. His thoughts are not clear. His perspective is not clear. If your life is about you and what you can achieve and where you're headed in your world and people are a means to your end, you break out against all sound judgment. You lack perspective. You lack clarity. You lack uh, any inkling of connection to what is ultimate reality. God created our hearts and lives to work only when we are in deep community with others. I mean, you just think about the mistakes that you've made and like, man, if I, was, if I had someone around me that really was looking after me, loved me, what a difference that would have made. Or maybe you have to look to your parents. You're thinking to yourself, man, what a difference it would have made if, if my dad would have actually gathered men around him who loved him and cared for him and served for him? And what if he lived that way? What, what would be different about my family if my dad was that way? 
That's why we pound the pulpit on community groups. I know they're imperfect. I know they're messy. I know people in them can drive you nuts or just simply not be interesting to you. I mean, who can compete with your awesomeness? No one. But you have to ask yourself, I mean legitimately ask yourself, what's driving that? What's driving that? Uh, man, it's just, not, it's just not for me. It, it, it's, it's, it doesn't trip my trigger. Uh, I'm too busy for that. I, I want to spend my time doing things that, that bless me. Is that one who sees ultimate reality as love and self-sacrifice? Or, is it, or is, it, is it born out of an ultimate reality about power and achievement? You can pray about that. Jesus said that you have to lose your life to find yourself. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying ultimate reality is not where you are the center and you are trying to find a better you. That's how, that's how, if, you, if, you, if you seek your life, you'll lose it. But if you let go of your life, if you're, if you're willing to be like a seed that falls to the ground and dies, if you're willing to lose your life, you will find yourself. And what's fascinating, convicting, he was only saying what the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been doing for all of eternity, laying down their life for the other. Unless you are willing to experience loss of options, limitations, surrender, lose your time, lose your money, lose your career, for deep, accountable, loving relationships, and lo- until you're willing to put those to relationships and love first, you are going to find your life at one point, either now or the last moment, you're going to find that your life has just been dashed on the rocks of reality. Because that's not what ultimate reality is. Ultimate reality is not built around power and individualism, but it's a community, a a oneness, a preferring, an honoring, a laying down your life. And so Jesus was able to say, hey, this has been tested. I'm not telling you you something new. I'm telling you something that has been happening for, for like forever, for a really long time. So how do we get in? How do we get into the dance, the, the love feast? How do we get into this? Well, that's what our main text was about. Let me read the, the second part. It says, for through him, and him is Jesus. For through him, we have access to one spirit to the Father. So there you have it, son, spirit, father. We have access to the Father. We get access to this doting love of the Father. When you read about how the Father feels about the Son in the, in the Scriptures, when you read through the Gospels, like, especially like at his baptism, I mean, he shouts, uh, his voice is audible, and everyone there to hear, here is my son who I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't preached a sermon, hasn't done any ministry, has done nothing. But here he is. This is the son that I want to dote about, I want to talk about, I want to love, I want to glory over. I want everyone to know how much I love my son. And God wants to make you a part of that. And how do we get to be a part of that? It's, it's through Jesus, his son. Verse 22 of John 17, I mentioned this earlier. It says, the glory that you have given me. So this is Jesus praying to the Father. The glory that you've given me. Father, you've glorified me. You've made much of me. 
I've given to them. So you've, sought to, you've, you've made me the sinner. I'm making them the sinner with this thing that we've been doing forever. I'm ma- I've, I've done that with them, that they may be one even as uh, we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Astounding. Verse 26 says this. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Did you hear that? This is the love that we get to share, the, the love that the Father dotes on the Son. They dote on each other. We get to be invited into well, How do we get into that? We get into that according to Ephesians and the rest of Scripture, really, through the Son. We don't get into this because somehow we earn it. We don't get into this because on our own merit. If we just be good people, God will let us in. We've been bad people, now we need to be good people. And that's not how it is. We get in there because of the Son. And, and I, we need to constantly remind ourselves of this. And, and, and this, has been, this was brought home to me several years ago uh, when I was 24, um, which was several years ago. I was invited by Clarence Harmon, who was the mayor of St. Louis at the time, to a roundtable discussion in his office. I was a stockbroker at the time, and one of my best clients um, uh, was, in, was deeply involved in the Hispanic community in St. Louis. She ran several events uh, uh, to bring the Hispanic community together and to showcase Hispanic culture to the rest of St. Louis. And she, had, she asked me if I would help you know, run this stuff with her. And I was a little bit unsure about it all, but when you're 24 and one of your best clients asks you to do something, you do it. And so that's what I did. And so I started, what my role was, was emceeing really these large events, um, introducing Hispanic acts and showcasing Hispanic art, which was absolutely nuts. I mean, my, my Spanish vocabulary was C, uh, casa. Uh, agua, I mean, it was just like, our, and Yokiro because of the Taco Bell commercial, like, I just, Cancun maybe, I don't know, like, I didn't, oh wait, La Cancun, so I didn't really know anything about this, now, I did learn another word, though, gyro, and, and if you don't know what gyro is, because I, I would always see people saying, they, they would, I, they were looking at me, and they'd say gyro, and they'd start snickering and laughing, and so I asked, like, what does that mean? What, is it? what, what, do, what do they keep saying that and laughing at me? They go, oh, gear, that means whitey. That means white boy. And so, like, they were just making fun of me, and, and I was, oh, get her, get her. And so anyway, <laughs> so back to my invitation uh, by the mayor. So I got invited uh, to this roundtable discussion to weigh in on the perspective of the, huma- the Hispanic community. Isn't that nuts? 24 years old, white guy. Invited to the mayor's to wait. So, by the way, this mayor did not get reelected, and you can probably see why. So, but let me tell you, this is this is the point. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to City Hall. It's not a great experience. And if you if you work at City Hall, it's not you. It's the system. Uh, but and the system is not good. And so, you, you go there if you need help. You take a ticket, and by next Thursday, and you know, you may get help by someone who doesn't really want to help you. And so you you go, but your experience is absolutely different when you pull up and your name is on the mayor's list. Parking is different. You don't have to wait in long lines. It's, you know, it's, would you like a seat, Mr. Mowry? Uh, anything we can get you, Mr. Mowry? Something to eat, perhaps something to drink? Well, none of that, but here's some parking tickets maybe you could take care of. 
I was treated very special that day by City Hall because I came in the mayor's name. If, if I came in my name, if it's just me, it's, it's take a number, have a seat, you know, wait forever. You're probably going to get sick or something bad's going to happen. But if you, when I came in the mayor's name, I came in at his level. And I was treated as the mayor is treated. When you come in in Jesus' name, you get treated at his level. Are you checking with that? Like, if the father dotes on the son and loves the son and prefers the son, and we are invited into that same love feast. We come in at his level when we come in at his name. Ephesians 2 says that we were that we have been seated in heavenly places. We've not been sent off into a corner until we figure out to be good little boys and girls. We've been invited into heavenly places because we come in at the level of Jesus when we come in his name. And we need to remind ourselves of this all the time. All, I don't know about you. I need to be reminded of this all the time. I get so caught up in my performance. It's so subtle. It's so insidious. And I begin to view God that way. And so me coming to Christ and enjoying Christ and enjoying the fellowship of other people, it, it, it ends up being about how good I've been. So, I, I mean, I can have days where I oversleep. I don't spend any time with the Lord. I don't read my Bible. I get in the car and everybody is somehow a sworn enemy of mine. I get to work and I'm unpleasant. And, you know, I miss opportunities to witness. I, I fall in temptation. I give in to sin. I get home. I kick the cat. And what's odd about that is I don't even have a cat. But it's just, it's just how bad of a day it is. And at the end of a day like that, I don't, think I, I don't feel like I, can, I could like look God in the eye. That's because I'm trying to come in on my name. I'm trying to come in. And you know what? The flip side is true as well. I may have a really amazing day. I mean, I wake up early. I go straight into the Word. I mean, I read a testament by breakfast. I mean, I've got plowing through chapters and books of the Bible and just loving it and lapping it in. I get in the car. I just tell every driver, hey, no, you go. No, you, no, you, like, you, I don't need to go. I don't have nowhere to go. You go. I get to work. I'm just a ray of sunshine for everyone to see. I'm witnessing the people. They're very compelled by me. They're very blessed. By, I mean, I'm not even walking. I'm just like floating six inches off the ground. I mean, it's just one of those kind of days. And at the end of the day, if I have that kind of mindset, well, of course God wants to talk to me. He's probably been waiting for me all day. After the fools he's had to talk to, he's just like opening the door. Finally, you're here. You come in on your name. You, you can either have this like, I don't deserve it. Or you can get in the same danger where you feel like you've earned it. But here's the truth, brothers and sisters. We do not come to the Father by the sweat of our brow, but by the blood of the Son. It's not our work. And when we get that, when we have that act, when we know that we get in, like we're coming in on his name, we come in on his level, it changes things. And we forget so easily, which is why we need the Spirit's help. And that's where the Spirit comes in. The Father wants to dote love on us. The Spirit gives us, excuse me, the Son gives us access and the Spirit helps us. Check out what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, why would that be? Why would, because we forget. We, we need each other. In fact, we can help each other with this. This is, again, why we get in community groups, encourage each other. 
I mean, so many times, God doesn't love me. God is this way. No, 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 he's not that way. He loves you. He's this way. And the Spirit is doing that too all the time, telling us that we are children of God. And it says it even more amazing, I think, too, in the verse before it, in verse 15. It says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So we've come into this on his access, uh, Jesus' access for him and his level, but we fall back. We fall back into feeling like we have to earn it. Or we have earned it. Whatever it is, it's not good to fall back in fear. But you've received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So Paul's saying you've, you don't have the spirit of slavery but a spirit of adoption. That it is through the Holy Spirit that we're reminded that we're sons of God. We're just not forgiven sinners. We are adopted sons and daughters. And there's a huge difference because you could be pardoned of something. Like a governor or a president can pardon you of your sin but you're not in relationship with him. You can't walk into the office. You, can't, you don't have the access that he has. You don't have the relationship with him. But you've been adopted into his family, the spirit of the adoption, and this reality where Paul says, we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, if you're my age or a little bit older, when you hear Abba, you think uh, Sweden, you think disco, you think spandex pants or whatever they were wearing. And uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just uh, Google it. And so we, but Abba, to the, to the little Jewish boys and girls, when they would hear Abba, they would think, well, that's what, or excuse me, the Romans, the, the readers of Romans, when they would see that, they would see that's what little Jewish boys and girls would cry out in the streets, Abba, 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 trying to chase their dad or trying to, you know, run through their father. The crowd, Abba, it's this word of, that's intimate, that's familial, that's warm. That's cozy. And here's the thing about this, the Trinity, about God, Father, Son, this love feast, this dance. He wants to invite you into a relationship and into a love that's cozy. Your relationship with God is not meant to be sterile and in a box. It's meant to be warm and there's to be feeling and emotion and it's to be cozy it's, it's it's to be familiar it's not just someone who's god is other god is this is the amazing thing about who god is he is other he is holy he is not like anyone his name is above all names and he he and if we look at our him and then we look at ourselves we'll feel distant we'll fall back into fear into slavery because we see this and we want to be a part of it we're like no i don't want to I don't want to be isolated. I don't want to be a part of the power struggle that the world is. I want to be in that relationship. I want to be in that love. But when we, we often think, we often look at him and we look at ourselves and we realize, man, I'm not even close. But this is how close he wants you to feel. He wants it to be cozy. He wants it to be warm. He wants it to be affectionate. And we can't feel that way without the Spirit's help. We can't feel, we can't experience or have the doting love of the Father on our lives without the access we're given by Jesus and through the power of the Spirit reminding us over and over again that you are adopted sons of God the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in this amazing relationship spilling over onto us, creating the world. Us looking at this dynamic Believing the lie that we can be our own center, that we can, that we can have, a, we can we can go for having other people be a means to our end, and it just 
broke and it just messed everything up. But God is, one, is inviting people back into this. Maybe you're here today and, you're, and you feel like you're distant. And how do I get into that? You get in there through the, through the name of Jesus by calling upon his name. You call upon the name of Jesus, you come at his level, day one, second one. Seated in heavy places. And the spirit of God will come into your life and will remind you that you are, you are a part of this. You've not earned it. It's all grace. It's all his mercy. And you can't unearn it. It's, it's all grace. It's mercy. You're, you're in with the son and the spirit. You need the spirit. You need all of them to, to remind you that you are a son, that you are a daughter. Why don't we stand?